The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by conductor and composer Matthias Pincher. Welcome, maestro. Thank you for having me again. I never know whether I should say conductor and composer or composer and conductor. Does it matter? I think it really does not yeah. matter. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, the question for you, because you've been doing both for about the same length of time. You started them both quite young, and you've been doing them for quite a while. And I wonder if you find it difficult now that you're so busy as a conductor to make time for composing. Oh, boy. Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're going right into the center of yeah, sure. Probably that the, the central... sensitive area, sure, which, sure. yes, obviously, it's... it's no, want to be honest about it it's yes it's very challenging to free yourself to find the space to right. live in to create your own music and especially after conducting symphonic works by especially Beethoven and, and Mahler I mean it's it stays with you it, sure. it owns you it ob- obsesses you and it takes sometimes a week to wash that out right out of your system and right. clear it so you can enter your own system again and um, for some reason, I didn't really design it that way, but it turned out I'm basically operating in the same way that then Gustav Mahler did. Uh, so, so you have a little shack so out in the woods. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working. Well, yeah. I'm working in New York City yeah. in my studio, sitting basically on my AC yeah. and not in the Komponierhäuschen in the sure. in the in the forest. Yeah. But um, it happens mostly in the summer, and I'm, I'm trying to keep most of the early summer free and uh-huh. not commit to do. Too many of those summer festivals, and sure. that's really my, let's say, prime time for yeah. for the writing. I mean, I always try to free like some periods throughout the year of two, three weeks consecutive where I'm not traveling and not doing anything else. Where you can but catch up on work, sitting yeah. at home and writing music. Yeah. But in the end, I have to say, also as challenging as it is, it's nowadays I really recognize that it's 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 good for me to have restricted time available or accessible because it really forces me to 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 collect myself mm-hmm. and and go right in and it it's still i mean knocking on wood it works quite well for me yeah. and i'm still producing at least one substantial work plus one or two smaller things per season and sure and i guess that's that's plenty it is plenty that's yeah. no small thing yeah that is no small thing well maybe we have to work on getting you a a Mahler style composer shack in upstate somewhere. <laughs> There's lots of beautiful lakes upstate. I'm, could... <laughs> I know that very well. <laughs> well, I love the way that you that you think about music. I, I you know, music for me isn't is just this ongoing history, and I and I love the way that you think about it too. And I I enjoyed an interview you gave back in 2015, and you talked about this sort of linear historical links between important composers like like Brahms connecting to Schoenberg and Schubert connecting to Bruckner. And I wonder if you approach the music that you're conducting with an eye for these connections. I mean, are you thinking about Brahms when you conduct Schoenberg or does it work in a different way for you? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. I mean, if you really look at the the late Brahms and how it most naturally and logically falls into the early Schoenberg, mm-hmm. it is basically the same thing. Sure. And yes, the late Schubert is a seamless transition to the early Bruckner. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's so connected and it, it really helps you to grasp the style of a composer, much, much better. I mean, I'm, you noticed I, I'm avoiding the terminology of understanding because of you, you cannot understand right. a Beethoven 8, but you 
you get closer to really, you know, doing justice to recognizing the the requirements of sure. the style of the yeah. specific score. If you study what happens at the same time in Beethoven's oeuvre when he wrote, let's say, Beethoven Eight, and right. what string quartet was happening at the same time, mm -hmm. what piano sonatas are, you know, happening at the same time. It's, it, that, that's that's what's I think is very helpful to do justice to the score and um, the, the composer's perspective onto a score is clear that I'm really trying to be the best possible advocate for whatever score I have in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that, that clearly is, um, I wouldn't call it an advantage, but it's, it's a sp specific element that I think a conducting composer or composing conductor has yeah. because it's, it's so complementary, as is the teaching sure. or curating a festival, composing a program. All this for me, it's it's the same. It's the same thing. I mean, I'm I'm really aiming for becoming that sort of a complete musician, and it doesn't really matter if I'm writing the music or if I'm interpreting the music mm -hmm. or sharing it. All this is the same. You know, yeah. Even what we do right here is we're talking about music, so it's about communication. Yeah, I I love the idea of of paying attention to history, though, as you look at a score and the idea that this this score is not necessarily just a thing by itself, but a sum of all of the Oh, I mean, possible the, the, music that came before and even after. It's, Absolutely, it's, it we're, fits we're, in time. we're part of everything, even yeah. if we neglect it. I yeah. mean, if you look at this incredible and always growing heritage of you know that surrounds us, it's 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 a privilege. Mm -hmm. It's an advantage. Mm -hmm. um, for, for a young composer, I guess it's very challenging or even scary because you look at more and more and more and more things and now it, everything has become so accessible in the last uh, 10 years and you don't even have to travel anymore to hear an orchestra play and it's, it's all so accessible and that's wonderful but also it's overwhelming the it amount is. of information that you know that 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 is coming towards you on a daily basis is is it's it's huge especially so, as, as uncurated as it yeah. is it's all coming to you unfiltered and un, unjudged and Indeed. You have to do all of that yourself. Indeed. You know, I want to talk a little bit about new music because you, in 2016, became the music director of the Ensemble Intercontemporary, which is a huge honor. I congratulate you. So you're one of the most important advocates for new music now these days because of your leadership of this ensemble. And I wonder how you would describe the state of new music today. I, I, I feel like we're in a world that, for which social populism is becoming increasingly more typical in the way humans interact with each other and contemporary art music could easily be seen as elitism and the wrong kind of human expression. And I just wonder, does this music still have a chance? Do you, how do you, how do you assess it? I mean, we, we have to, first of all, I think understand that every music that has been conceived was new music at its very time. Sure. Even the Goldberg variations, right. even the Schubert C major symphony, even the Don Giovanni by mm. Mozart. And just, be assured that the people on on the streets in Prague during the period when Don Giovanni was premiered, they didn't right. whistle those tunes on the street. <laughs> they um, might have even been a little bit confused by what they so, saw. Yeah. You know, music needs time and needs re-listening and re-approaching and it needs passionate and competent performers. Yeah. That's where it really starts with. I mean, if you have great music, the music of our time that is being brilliantly interpreted and presented and brilliantly programmed mm. too mm -hmm. it's another very important element mm -hmm. then it has not only the chances to to convince but it is convincing and even to the people who don't necessarily like that sort of aesthetic but it's it's there and there's no question about that something very powerful is just happening here it's like mm. if you look at it some people don't like picasso 
Sure. Um, but you look at it and you damn know yeah. that <laughs> yeah. something very powerful There's is, is speaking there. to you. Yeah. you. Like it yeah. or not. Sure. And and so I think that's that's the same thing with all good music. Um it is conceived for humans that breathe, that blow their air into an instrument, that need to rephrase and always re-aggregate a bow to produce sound. Mm-hmm. And I mean this is all like genuinely human. Right. If you have a consciousness for that and in combination with your talent or your genius, whatever it needs, um, it will be heard. So you feel good about... I feel absolutely yeah. good about what we're yeah. doing. And, and uh, maybe I'm also extremely spoiled or lucky because I get to play with these wonderful orchestras and ensembles and the people are coming and they, they buy our CDs and they're curious. And I see how many people listen to our podcasts and watch our videos. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a huge interest for what we do and and you just need to do it really well and yeah. i mean we mean it and especially like an institution as the ensemble intercontemporain in paris um of course we're like a so-called specialist ensemble but it's our dna and we we live it most naturally and we get very very convincing results and well, there's a huge following and um I, I love it when great symphony orchestras commit to playing new music right. and if they program it right yeah uh, you can be tremendously successful with it. I have to say, I, I agree with everything you're saying about the content at the ensemble because I spent some time on the website this week just sort of familiarizing myself with what you've been doing there. And there's a lot of great video content mm. down there. There's I, I encourage anybody who's listening to go check that out. There's a lot of really cool projects you're doing there. And I, I applaud you. And I, I think we need more of this in the U.S. Um, be bold. I mean, yeah. there is, uh, it's interesting that all these discussions um, we have with presenters and feeling that, you know, that, that caution, mm. that hesitation yeah. of just making a move forward. I mean, what does it mean to move forward? This whole terminology of avant-garde, right. avant-quoi, in front of what? Yeah, exactly. You know, but it's the it's the yeah. momentum itself. It's the it's it's movement. It's let's really believe in that everyone, every listener that comes to the symphony is an equally qualified listener. Mm. There is no such thing that we would say that the expert or even the critic or someone who really knows a work or has listened to it ten or fifty or five hundred times is a more qualified listener. I mean, I know that's a very bold statement, but I really mean that. I, I mean, it, it goes it goes straight to our brain and heart and all of those interactions in between sure. the two. Um, that's why I think it's very important also to see new music. Yeah. Um, it's a very important element. How is like a silence being prepared, anticipated? Um, how are these sounds being produced? Who is actually participating in creating that specific sound? What is the percussionist doing there in the back? What instrument is that? Why... What? This is the violas? And I mean, we, we play with this, and I think it's a very, very important element to really be conscious about that the visualization of, of the music of our time is, is, is a very strong and powerful, crucial element. I'm really glad you brought that up because I've always felt like one of the things that, that should be more talked about with new music in the advertising and in the descriptions is how interesting it is physically, vis- visually. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's an important component. I, just watching how the sounds are made, watching how the people stand, watching how they hold themselves, watching how the stage configurations differ. Absolutely. Really but, fascinating. Or music creates images. It's right. also the contrary. I mean, right. we listen to sound, to sonic images, and it cr- creates visual images and memories and mm-hmm. sensations. So I'm very conscious about when I write music that I also see what's what's going to happen 
with what I put on paper. How does it look when right. the orchestra does it or when the string right. quartet actually Absolutely. plays that music and right. that hesitation when, you know, when four players have to put the bow on the string and start a beautiful sound together in like a very subtle, you know, nuance. That's very powerful. Yeah. Um, and I'm, yes, I, I'm very conscious about these things and it's part of my music inventing process, sure. whatever that is, my inner ear, my inner system. I, I think about what how it resonates in a space. It's music in spaces. I, I love to think about the acoustics of a Concertgebouw or a symphony, symphony hall in, in Boston or right. you know, all these great halls that have a specific sonic identity. It really informs my, my creativity, my inner, my inner sound, my inner voice. It seems obvious in the way you conduct too, that you're, that you're thinking about not just the sonic aspect, but how things physically sort of present in the creation of the sound yeah, how it yeah. how it actually works or what it needs right. in a specific acoustic circumstance yeah you cannot just do the same thing with a different orchestra in a different hall it's just mm -hmm. it, it, i would go as far as to say as an interpreter you stand in front of an orchestra in sydney and boston or in amsterdam and you have the same approach you, of course you say the same things you maybe even look the same sure and it comes out as something completely Right. And isn't that beautiful? It is. That's one, <laughs> one of the best parts of this. And it's that's that's the magic of, of music making because it's about sharing. It's really about giving and taking. It's about yeah. listening. I mean, the ear is our instrument, and uh, the sound of or the different sound of a clarinet section can completely change your approach. Of course. Yeah. And how do the basses play a pizzicato? Like in Dresden, they play it really late and soft, and all that has an enormous impact on. Sure what you do yeah. yeah of course you're governing your interpretation together with that instrument mm -hmm. but in the end it's the instrument that rings and resonates I, I, I see a lot of the music you're not using a baton. It makes me think of Boulez, of course. And I wonder what he meant to you personally and how you hope the world will remember him over the next couple of decades. I was so lucky to almost be able to call him. He was a father to me. Yeah. He was a friend. Yeah. Yes, he was a mentor. And it's interesting that nowadays I'm carrying most of the Boulez heritage mm -hmm. uh, on my shoulders. Well, let's say inside my body sure I, I prefer that sure it's the ensemble for yeah. sure that he started 40 years ago um i took over the artistic directorship of um, the lucerne festival academy that right. was his other baby mm -hmm. unbelievably beautiful and powerful project and uh, i run that too so there's a lot of boules with me sure and as you mentioned yeah we lost him so recently but he's so with us and because that was all I really cared about. It is to 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 pass something on, without being really a teacher, but like this, the high self standards and 
what I just said is like to really obsessively guarantee and make sure that you become the best possible advocate of someone else's score or your own score. Sure. It's the same. Absolutely. Exactly the same. This is this is what we do and we as all the people that came in touch with Boulez, that magically, whatever he did to us, but he set the bar very high and that makes, creates something very, very sincere, honest, modest and and I think very, very powerful. So Boulez, yes, we spent a lot of time together. And I remember every time I was conducting a new major work of the repertoire for the first time, he, he found the time to see me in mm. his house in Baden-Baden and Schwarzwald in the sure. Black Forest in yeah. Germany. And we spent afternoons long on the couch talking about La Mer and Schoenberg from Orchesterstück, my first Daphne. So I, I, I cooked my first Osobuco with Pierre Velez. <laughs> and and it's it's so funny that we never talked about each other's music. I conducted basically all Velez yeah. over and over again. He conducted most of my symphonic repertoire. And we never talked about each, that each other's really music. That is really interesting. And that was great because yeah. there was there was so much um trust and and that that caring, loving attitude, mutual, that was it's a tremendous, a tremendous gift. And I'll never forget the moment when we lost him. I was flying over to Glasgow and working with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra where I have a post as a principal guest conductor. And uh, we started rehearsing Parsifal mm. Overture. And that was the one Wagner piece that really mattered to, to Pierre. Yeah. And... I landed, there's this one flight from New York on United to Glasgow. It lands at 7.30. And for some reason, my cell phone didn't didn't connect to the mm. réseau, to the net. To the news, yeah. And to the news in yeah. the end. So I just walked in without having phone reception, nothing. And I walked on stage and as always, good morning. Mm -hmm. And everyone just stared at me and looked at me like, oh my God. He doesn't know. Yeah. He doesn't know. And I didn't know. And then oh. we played Parsifal. And it was rough because people couldn't really play because they knew that he was my father. Of course. And I had no idea. And then I actually stopped the rehearsal and said, well, listen, look, let's take a break and continue after the break. And then the principal clarinet came up to me and hugged me and said, we're so sorry, Matthias. And I said, oh, no, no, it's okay. We'll just work more on the intonation after the break. <laughs> and he's like, you don't know? I said, yeah. I don't know what. Yeah. And there it was. And then... I went to my dressing room and my phone basically had exploded I'm in the sure. meantime. I'm sure. And then I came back and we played more Parsifal and that was that was powerful. Probably the best way to to pay tribute music. in that moment. It's music and and he's so yes, it was a huge loss, but he left so much with us. All these institutions oh. that he had built. Ircam in Paris, the yeah. Ensemble Intercontemporain, yeah. the Lucerne Festival Academy. Um, now the new concert hall we have in, mm -hmm. in Paris, all that mm -hmm. would not be there without Pierre. I think about everything he did when, when he was with the Chicago Symphony and, you know, those Bartok recordings he did that mm. are to me mm. definitive. Mm. I mean, he left monuments of all kinds. Exactly, exactly. But monuments not for himself. Not at all. He built the houses for us to live in right. and to work in. Absolutely. I, and this, this he's, he, he didn't build a monument for himself. No. There's no pluck right. on none of these institutions. Right. It, it's He passes it on to us, and but better do well with it. I they mean, that, that, that was very clear. All Absolutely. But um, yes, he created homes for us, yeah. and I, I'm very privileged to to be living in some of them well, today. I, and I think it's interesting that you didn't talk about each other's music because I'm sure with him, 
hearing him talk about La Mer was all you ever needed to know about him as a composer. I'm sure you learned everything about the way he thought just hearing him talk about, you know, great standard repertoire like that. Those experiences, you must treasure uh, It's I treasure them in, in, tremendously, yeah. tremendously. And his, his scores were always very sparsely marked mm-hmm. because it was all in the head. Yeah, in the of end. course. And uh, it was, and again, when we talked, I remember exactly when we talked about La Mer, it was not that he taught me something or he told me something. It was really answer a question, mutual. Like, what do you think about that? And right. why, I always wondered why that double, that, that second bassoon is not doubling. The, you know, it was just, we were really talking about texture, mm-hmm. that curiosity that Pierre had. That, that was one of these unique gifts that he shared with us. And then he was really, he was unbelievably curious in what we think about certain things or how we approach yeah. something or failing. We talk, talked a lot about why we fail. Mm-hmm. And that's so beautiful that someone was so unbelievably generous and curious and he loved gossip like no one else. <laughs> that most wonderful, sophisticated Pierre Boulez yeah. who could indulge in gossip like I no one it. else. And we love it. That is fantastic. <laughs> that might be the most memorable thing I've heard on this podcast in a long time. That is really great. Well, I, I know you have to conduct tonight. As we record, you're conducting concerts with the Utah Symphony. And the, the big second half piece is the symphonic dances of Rachmaninoff, which I wanted to talk just a second about because I've always in my life been fascinated by last pieces like the Berg Violin Concerto and the Bartok Third Piano Concerto and the Mozart Requiem, Strauss Four Last Song. The list goes on. I just feel like these pieces have a kind of haunted energy to them like they live both on both sides of mortality i'm not sure do you find anything interesting about about these these pieces or maybe i'm just crazy and looking for something that isn't there not at all there is i mean you mentioned bartok's third piano concerto it's interesting like with the symphonic dances and let's say bartok three and Mm -hmm. certainly the mozart requiem there is a great sense of simplicity Mm. um all the unnecessary is left out yeah and talking in specifically now about the Rahmaninov, it is I, I treasure this piece a lot and it's maybe the one Rahmaninov piece a little bit the third piano concerto to to me that has some sort of emotional complexity yeah it's not texturally complex but there is a complexity in the, the when the hallelujah comes in in the last movement it's not bombastic. It's right. it's it's unbelievably modest and sad. Yeah. In its most possible sophistication. And if you if you imagine that that strong, grand, tall guy was really eaten up by cancer Absolutely, at that, yeah. that time. And then he conceives that unbelievably noble, beautiful music. I found that really, really moving. He doesn't squeeze our emotions. It's the opposite. He takes a step back and leaves the emotions and the colors to it's us. It's sort of unsentimental, this music. It's, it really is. It's really... It is. And it's, that, that why, that's why it goes directly to the heart. I agree completely. There's no message here sent out like, this is what you have to feel or this right. is what you should feel. And he has been... He, he could be called guilty of doing that in other pieces, but in this one... A little bit. Yeah. But in this one, it's, it's just... It's not, it's not unnecessarily nostalgic. It's just really straightforward and I, I like your word complex it's, i think it's the most it's, it's very pure and yeah. the emotions are very pure but yeah. that's what makes them complex yeah. and there's room for all of us to live in these these textures um it, yeah it's it's a piece that is very very dear to me and um 
as is the Bartok Third Piano Concerto, which I've done a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And that second movement is so simple. It's like Beethoven Fourth Piano Concerto, the slow movement. It's a few notes only, but right. boy, how powerful is that? And I mean, it's, it's it comes to reduction. Yeah. You know, when you you mature, old composer, Verdi, Falstaff, what a sublime yeah. score right. it is, and because it's so to the point. Mm -hmm. Monteverdi, Popea, yeah. what a grand score. I mean, it, I sometimes with my students do an experiment and I play snippets of like 10, 20 seconds from a late Mozart opera or a Monteverdi opera. And it's in German or in Italian or whatever language. And the students don't know at all who's singing, what this is. Uh, obviously, they know it's Mozart. But then we try to describe the emotional conditions of what's going on. And it's mm. unbelievably interesting to see how how close they actually get to describing what they don't know it's happening, but what they feel in sure. that music. And yeah. that can happen in 20 seconds. Of course. And only Mozart could do that. Uh, only Mozart. Only Mozart. That you really yeah. get a very, very... And I say clear, clear is wrong, but you get a, a very strong sense of what is emotionally going on, even without singing, knowing who is singing right. or what language they're singing in. Right. And where that snippet sits in like a two, three hour opera. Yeah. So, uh, wow. Yeah. And I think, and I think clear is a very good word. Mm. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it applies to how the music sounds, but also the way the music delivers its message. This, it just seems to be shot through with, with, with light and intellect. And mm. it's just, you just don't have to guess. It's really obvious to me. Um, I hope you have time for one more silly question. And it's a question we ask all the guests on the show. And it's because of our name, of course. And speaking of haunted music, I wonder if you have ever seen a ghost yourself. You've been a lot of theaters in your life. Have you ever seen one? I have not met a ghost. I, and it's a very personal thing, but I'm happy to talk about it. I have a very strong, let's call it a spiritual connection to a very, very dear friend that I lost a few years ago. Mm. An old lady. And I can connect to her. Really? Yes, and uh, I find that very powerful. And I'm not, you know, abusing that at all. Like, yeah. talk to me, help me. What can I do? Give me advice. No, no. But when, you know, and sometimes every couple of years when I really feel like I, I can reach out, then she now has a way out to respond. She's, and I find that she's there. She's there when you need her. She's there. I think that is the best last word that we could possibly ask for. And Maestro Pincher, thank you so much for being part of the Ghostlight Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 